come to the end of this series. It's hard to believe that these two months have flown by. But there are so many more stories of restoration, and um, I'm working diligently to get those plugged into the series ahead. So uh, don't think this is the end of stories of restoration. It's only the beginning. God is unlocking uh, hearts to be able to see his restoration in a life and then tell that story. And those stories are powerful. Amen? We're going to continue to tell those stories. And there are some that I've just, I mean, all of them I'm overwhelmed by. And um, I just can't wait for you to hear more of those stories. You know, God is greatly glorified in restoration. He, he loves that. In fact, he's passionate for it. It's part of his, his desire, ultimately. His eternal design and desire is for restoration. From before the foundation of the world, the Bible says that Jesus was crucified. He was slain from before the foundations of the world. That means that before there was creation as you and I know it, God already had in his mind and heart that there would be you and I, that we would fall, that we would need to be redeemed, and he would have a plan in place for that to happen. It didn't catch him off guard. It didn't catch him by surprise. It was part of his plan from the beginning. Restoration has always been his plan. So don't overlook the areas in your life that have been dark, that have been painful, that have been filled with conflict that you can't see the resolve in yet because God is a God of restoration. He chose those moments and says, I'm going to redeem those. Amen. The Bible also says that before the foundations of the world, you and I were chosen in him that we might be holy and blameless. I'm telling you, it's part of his plan, always has been, for restoration. And we all need that kind of reminder today. When the days are dark, you need hope from the light. And this message of restoration does that. It gives us hope beyond the moment. Because we live in a land today that is consumed with rebellion against God. They are, not everybody, but many, are pushing as hard and fast as they can away from all that belongs to God. They are worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, just as the book of Romans said would happen. We live in a culture where people are bowing to their urges, their own urges, over God's commandments. And if they feel it, they want to act on it, and they want room for it, and they want to be applauded for it, and they want to stiff-arm God. We live in a nation today that looks to man and looks to government to solve the ills and issues of the day. Government was never designed by God for that purpose. That is God's role alone. Amen, amen. The role of government is to punish evil and reward good. That's it. It's not government's role to be my provider. It's not government's role to educate my children. It's not government's role to provide me health care. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We live in a world today where woke belief has taken over and the offended are giving honor and those who do well and do right are being punished. It's the day in which if you are 
straight, married, conservative, a Christian, and white. You are looked down on. And if you are not any of those, you're given extra points. And the more of those you are not, the more credit you get by their own definitions. Look up intersectionality at some point and you'll see what I'm talking about. We also live in a day where woke policy is not just happening in schools and in the culture, but it's happening in international policy as well. Yeah. Today, America, by those who lead America, is put last behind others. Today, many apologize for being American. Today, there's a policy that internationally puts us apologizing for being American, that negotiates with terrorists, that funds those who violate the law while punishing those who keep the law. It's okay to say amen, folks. This is a safe spot right here. Come on now. This is us. We are believers. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care who's listening in. Come on now. Look, this is our day to be the church. Let's not be afraid of these things. The enemy has come in and he's prowling around. Do not let him intimidate you to keep your voice quiet. This is a place where you can be loud. Amen. You have permission and freedom. Nobody in the room is going to look at you funny because you say, amen, preach it, love it, come on, whatever, okay? Thank you. That's what I needed. <clears throat> Today we live in a nation where opening the borders is more important than anything else, it seems. And instead of restricting the rights who come in, there's a restriction of the rights of the people who are already in. And that's not right. There's a problem with that. We live in a nation today that rejects objective truth. They're not following the science. They're not following the facts. They're not following the truth. They're following a political agenda and a woke philosophy is what's happening. And sadly, many churches across our land have fallen prey to all of this. They're no longer believing in the inerrancy of the Bible, that it is without error, that it is God-given, that it is God-breathed, and it is to be what dictates and directs our life completely. Churches today are no longer holding to the demands of the gospel, preaching a message of grace and pulling back from the reality that grace teaches us that denying ungodliness, we should live soberly and righteously in this present age. Churches today accepting all types of lifestyles in the door, into membership. Look, this door is open for all who would come. There is grace and mercy and forgiveness for all. Whosoever will may come. But when you come to the cross, there is a calling away from your sin. There's not an acceptance and an applause for you in your sin at the cross. In fact, the bloody body of Jesus says that sin is what will destroy you. That sin is what brought our Lord Jesus to the cross to begin with. Repent of it and walk away from it. Amen. Amen. We welcome people to come in that door who are caught in their addictions, who are caught in their alternative lifestyles, who are caught in all kind of confusion, we invite you to come in. But we don't want you to leave with that same sin still in you and on you. Amen? Amen. 
Jesus came to set the captives free, and that's what we are here for as the church today, to help set the captives free. I understand that may be a process. We'll join you in the process. We'll walk with you in the process. As long as you're still walking to the cross and still walking in the power of the Spirit and still saying, help me be free, we'll walk with you every step of the way. But if you come in demanding us to accept you in your sin and accept your sin, I'm sorry, that's not gonna happen here. We'll welcome you, but we'll welcome your humility to receive truth and be changed. Amen. Amen. So we live in a day where we, even as Christians, are being attacked for our faith. Even when we've not done any, it's going to sound egotistical, but when we're not the ones who've done something wrong, Today, it's almost as though if you hold to the faith and you believe in the Bible and you lift up Jesus, that you are the greatest offense in the nation, right? Jesus said there'd be days like that. In fact, that's just the natural outcome, really, of being a Jesus follower. Uh, I listened to Tony Evans recently, love Tony Evans' ministry, and uh, yeah, it's good. And he, he gave an analogy that... Uh, I, just can't pass up. So credit to Tony Evans, but here's what he says. He says, we live in a different day today. He says, it used to be that we were the home team and we are no longer the home team in our own nation. I can relate to that because I, uh, I was in band in high school, went to a lot of football games and I loved the games where we were the home team because it was our scoreboard it was our field, it was our colors, it was the bigger stands, we had more people, and we set the agenda for the night. But when we were the visiting team and we had to go into some other place, there were sometimes the other team was friendly. We were going onto their turf. We had the smaller stands, the smaller number, wasn't our colors, wasn't our songs, wasn't our referees. Hello. I, I, when I was in school in Oak Cliff, I remember driving into some, some stadiums. And I'm just a band guy. Come on. I'm just, we're just in the band. We're just standing out there, you know, outside the end zone. And the bus has come by with all the other football players from the opposing team. And they're booing and spitting on us and all that kind of stuff. Stuff happened. That was 1978, a long time ago. When you are not the home team, things change all of a sudden. And we today, as believers, we used to be the home team here in our own nation. You were, you were admired, honored, recognized if you were a believer. There was a greater understanding of Christianity and the faith, and there was a respect for people who were people of faith. But today, that's not the case. We're no longer the home team. They're not playing our song anymore. The referees are cooked against us today. Hello? We live in a land that's against us. And it makes the message of restoration even more desirous. It just, there's just an ache and a longing inside all of us for something different than what's happening today. I know you feel it. I feel it too. That's the spirit of God within us crying out. It's the, it's the earth under birth pains for the return of Jesus. It's us longing for justice and for truth and for hearts to turn to the gospel. So as we finish our series today, our message today is called The Greatest Restoration. We've heard some stories over the last several weeks, and as I said, we're going to hear some more in the weeks ahead. But today, I want to tell you the story that I believe is the greatest story of restoration in the Bible. 
And you might be thinking through what some of those characters might be. Is this Old Testament? Is it New Testament? Is it in Paul's letters? Is it in Moses' writing? Is it in the Gospels? Who is it? Here's the deal. This story is on every page of the Bible. This story belongs to the one who has the greatest story, Jesus himself. And his story starts in the beginning and it continues to the end and it continues on for eternity. So today, we're going to look at several passages. I want us to start back where we started when we first began this series. I pointed out to you then a passage from the Old Testament in the law. When God gave the law, he set up a very specific law for when there was an offense or a theft, when someone stole something from someone else. And this passage became to us the groundwork for where we were headed in this series. Because all that God wrote in the Old Testament for us was meant for our learning and instruction. And it was meant to show us a Savior who was coming. So let me re open up this package again from Exodus. It says there in Exodus 22, it says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So God wrote into the law for God's people. If someone steals a sheep from someone else and they slaughter it, that person, let's just do a little visual here. Remember our sheep? So there's a guy here and he's got a sheep, right? and I come along and I steal his sheep. He doesn't see me, at least I don't think he does. I take his sheep and I slaughter his sheep and it is gone. But then I get caught. When that happens, the law said first, I had to take a sheep to the priest for my sin. I had to have a sacrifice made for my sin. So let's say I had some more sheep. That one was slaughtered, but I had another one. So I take it to the priest and offer it for my sin as a payment for my sin. Because anytime there's sin, there must be the shedding of blood. And a lamb was a sacrifice for sin. God set that up. But this verse says, not only that, if you have offended a person, stolen from them, not just offended God, you now had to restore to them what you took. And you didn't take back one for one. If you stole one, you had to take back four. So now I would have to take back to him four sheep, and this guy, look at this deal. He comes out ahead on the deal because he had one and now he's got four. He's got four times what he had before. He had more restored to him than was taken from him. What a deal. God wrote grace into the law. Come on now, look. He got back more than what he lost when it was taken from him. God set it up that way. Now, here was the deal. What if me as the thief, I stole the one and I didn't have the four. I was broke, I didn't have anything and I had no way of repaying this poor man. I didn't even have a way to pay for my sin. You know what was done for me? I would have had to have been arrested and put in jail. I would have been in prison and may have been even sold off as a slave when I couldn't pay my debt. That's the way it works. Because when your sin's not paid for, you'll stay a slave of that sin. That's what happened and I would end up living in guilt 
for that. I would live in shame for that. You know, that would be a terrible situation if for you and I, we had to somehow pay back what we stole from God. You say, well, I didn't. No, I stole anything. Oh, you did. You stole his glory and took it for yourself. You stole the way of life and said, I'll do this on my own, thank you. You stole the glory and said, I can just do this all with my own strength, my own power, my own will. And God says, look, all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the payment for sin is death. Pay up. And you and I would be found speechless because you don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have the ability to pay God back for what I took from him, much less restore four times what I took from him because that's what he requires in this law. Hello? You, you, don't, you don't have it. All your good church attendance, all your good deeds, all your good thoughts, all your good things you want to do, you don't have it to pay God back. I don't care how good you were for the rest of your life. It would never be enough to match the righteousness of Christ and what God demanded for sin. And that would be a terrible ending to the story. Man sinned, God judged, man died, the end. But thankfully, there is the gospel, the good news. And we've looked at how Romans says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans 5.20. That's what the Bible points out to us. That when we were caught in our sin, when we were abounding in it, having our way in it, and it was having its way in us, in that spot where you were caught, where you were locked up, where you were done, where you couldn't get out of it, where you were stuck, in that place, grace comes to you. Grace comes looking for you, and it's bigger than the sin you committed. God sent a way for the sin to be paid for, for your guilt to be removed, for you to not have to live in fear, in judgment of a someday God coming to smack you down for all you've done in life. Grace comes to us and Jesus pays the price. Jesus steps up and says, I will be the one who pays the price. So using our illustration here again, If I'm the sinner, and let's let this be Jesus, this side of the stage, and here he is, and I steal from him all that he is, his glory, his love, his kindness, his favor, his truth, and I trample on it, I despise it, I reject it, I walk away from it, and I absolutely refuse to bow my knee to it. Now, I am the one who is the offending party. I committed the sin. I deserve judgment because now I have to pay him back. I owe God and I owe him for what I did to him, and I can't. Here is what the gospel says, that when that happened, that Jesus saw us while we were enemies and he loved us. And he said, I will pay the price. I will pay back to the Father for what you have done. And so Jesus gave himself as the lamb to pay the price. John the Baptist said, look, Here comes the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus comes and he lays down his life and he not only pays the debt, but he also pays for the restoration. And he brings all of that to the Father. 
and he restores to the Father what has been lost. He restores what I stole, right? And, and those in his day laughed at him, mocked him, hated him, cursed him. And Jesus often quoted uh, Old Testament passages as a way of saying, all that you read before, that was about me. All that was me. And there's a time in the New Testament where Jesus quotes a passage from the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 69. He does it in John 15, if you're making notes this morning. At one point, Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. And Jesus is referring to this passage because he'd experienced that in his life. He'd experienced that kind of despising, spit in your face, I don't have anything to do with you, who do you think you are, you are not the Messiah, you are not the one, and they spit in his face, they arrested him, they beat him, and they crucified him, and Jesus quotes a part of this verse, which means this verse in Psalm 69 is about Jesus himself. Look at it. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. That's a lot of people hating, despising, without a cause. They didn't have a good reason. It wasn't because of anything he had done. It was because of everything they had done. He says, they that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. They are mighty and they do it wrongfully. But look at the last part. He says, then I restored that which I took not away. Jesus said, I wasn't the one who stole the sheep, but I am the one who restored what you took away. I didn't take it away, but I'll restore it all. He restored that which he did not take away. Now, I just want to call your attention here to the fact that this is the King James Version. If you're reading this, the NIV, uh, New King James, ESV, you're going to lose some of the meaning here in this. I believe the King James in this situation is a more accurate translation. I restore that which I took not away. Only grace can do that. Only love can do that. Can look at your life and say, I know you have made an absolute travesty and failure of your life. I know you've blown it. I know you've had so much done to you, and I know you've done much yourself. And there's no way you could ever make it right, and there's no way you could ever have it restored. But I'm here to show you how much I love you by not just paying for you, but paying for your restoration as well. This morning, I want us to see that Jesus suffered the greatest injustice. We see the cross. We see the physical pain of the cross. We know the spiritual pain as well, that Jesus was doing battle with the forces of evil as they mocked him on the cross, as they insulted him on the cross, as they hurled accusations against him as his own soul ached in pain, as he himself wondered if the father had even turned his face away, I assure you, he did not. Regardless of what you've heard, regardless of what gospel song you've heard that said the father turned his face away, I challenge you to find that for me in scripture somewhere. It's not there. The father never turned his face away, but when you're bearing the sin of the world, it'll make you feel like even the father has turned away. Are you with me? And Jesus dealt with that. But Jesus dealt with it in a little bit different dimension as well. It's one thing to fail and have to take your stripes. It's quite another to not fail and have to take someone else's stripes for injustice to occur. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that or not, 
I don't know if you've ever faced punishment that you did not do. If you've ever faced loss for something that someone else did and you know the horrific pain of injustice. Our Lord Jesus was dealing with that on the cross because though he was the one that had always existed, he chose to come like us in the form of man and limit himself that we might know him as the Savior. Though he had done no wrong and though he lived a life of sinless perfection on earth, thus making it possible for him to be the spotless lamb sacrificed for our sins, he suffered. He suffered accusation. He suffered rejection, even from those that he had poured his heart out to the most. He suffered the physical pain of the cross. He suffered the mental and emotional brutality of that moment. And he suffered having to bear all of it as a great injustice. They hated him without a cause. And it was our sin that he went there for. Philippians chapter 2 walks us through this experience from the other side, looking back. It says there, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The humiliating, hanging in front of others naked, hanging in front of others as a criminal, hanging in front of others despised and rejected, hanging in front of others powerless because the Father had told him to stay silent. And he did. He suffered a greater injustice than any person has ever suffered. The physical torture, the spiritual torture, and being tortured by being an injustice, being unjustly treated, Jesus experienced that. No other person ever in the history of mankind ever has or ever will suffered like our Lord Jesus suffered. But God takes careful note of every loss and every pain in our life. Because remember, he is a God of restoration. He sees he knows. And the deeper the pain, the greater the restoration. The deeper the loss, the greater the restoration. You lose one sheep, you get four sheep. You lose 10 sheep, you get 40 sheep. Hello? You lose 100 sheep, you get 400 sheep. It's God's plan. Right? So if he suffered the greatest injustice, then he would have to receive the greatest restoration. Amen? amen? Yeah, amen. So Philippians goes on, and it tells us this. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Oh, there were a lot of names of people who hated Jesus. There were a lot of names of people who made wicked decisions about Jesus. But when Jesus did what the Father called him to and he became the sacrifice and made restoration because of what he had done and been through, the Father said, I'm going to restore to you more than what you lost. And so the Father takes our Lord Jesus from this place of great death and pain and the lowest place, and he elevates him to the highest place. He gives him the name that is above every name ever to be named and says, now this is your place of restoration. That's what God does with his son. Remember that. That at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow of those in heaven 
and of those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus got his restoration. And Jesus will receive his restoration. Whatever he lost, he'll get back more because he was given a name above every name. And the Bible says there's coming a day that every knee, every knee, everyone that has ever been born of woman on earth, anyone who has ever existed, all will one day see him high and lifted up and they will have no other choice except to recognize him as Lord. Come on now. Every tongue that laughed at him, every tongue that mocked him, every tongue that turned against him, every tongue that made decisions that put him on the cross, every tongue in our day-to-day that seeks to shut the church down, shut down truth, and put an end to Christianity, every tongue will one day bow and confess. They will say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. They will. There'll be some like us, I believe, who have called on that name, who have loved that name, who found hope in that name, who've trusted in that name, who in the deep night of pain and question and wondering cried out to that name with just a whisper from our breath, All of us in that moment, those who've needed hope and comfort through that name, those of us who found salvation in that name, those of us who found healing in that name, those of us who've gathered as God's people under that name, those of us who have declared that name, those of us who have fought for that name, those of us who stand for that name, we will also stand that day and we will say it with a loud voice. We'll say it with a clear voice. We'll say it with a heart of worship. Jesus is Lord. Amen. 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 Because he will be restored to a place of even greater glory than he had before by by being given a name above all names. He'll get the four to one restoration. And then when you think that's the end of the story and it is brilliant, God says, no, I'm just getting started. Because now the father says, what the son did wasn't just for the son. What the son did was for you, for every one of us had sinned. He says, I've come to restore. I heard a pastor this week say something that just, it just hit me different. You know, in the New Testament where it says that um, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what I'm talking about? For the joy that was set before him. I always picture that as uh, the father and his throne and being received back into heaven and restoration and Jesus seeing all of that. That was the joy that was set before him. That's what I've always pictured it. And this pastor I listened to said, that joy was you. You being free. You having your heart free from the bondage of trying to pay it all back. You being free from the fear that he was coming to get you. You being free from all the anxiety that makes you think he's not for you, but he's against you. For the joy of you being free from that, free from your sin, free from all the entanglements, free from all the doubt, free from all that stuff, for the joy of that, you and me. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That changed 
that picture for me. Because Jesus invites us to receive the very thing that he received in ultimate restoration. You see, you and I might think, oh, Jesus saved me and I'm just gonna come barely crawling into heaven one day. I'll just barely make it. I'm just hoping to get there by the skin of my teeth. I don't know what the skin of your teeth is, but it's gotta be thin, right? It's just, it's a weird saying to begin with. Look, when you cried out and said, God, save me, I speak the name of Jesus. In that moment, he didn't give you a ticket to get you in by the skin of your teeth. He gave you a ticket that seated you at the right hand of the Father. He gave you and I all that Jesus restored. He gave you security, peace, hope, love, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every one of those, Ephesians 1 says, is now ours. He restored what we lost. He restored what he did not take away, and he makes it available for us. And then Jesus takes it one step further and says, I really want my, my people to remember this. It's important to remember, right? I mean, I got to have some daily, sometimes hourly reminders of the goodness of God. Hello? I've got to have some reminders of his faithfulness and his promises. Jesus said, I'm going to do that for my people. I'm going to give them a way to tangibly remember. And he gave us, the church, communion. He gave us the Lord's Supper as a tangible way of remembering this new covenant, this new way of relating to him, in which it was not based on the sacrifice of lambs annually for our sin, but it was based on the one-time sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus, for our sin. Amen. That you and I might enter in by faith and receive that and have the total, complete, absolute forgiveness of all sin. That I might even be declared righteous. Not by what I've done, but by what he's done and my faith in that. And so Jesus gave this. The Apostle Paul writes about it. And I would ask you, if you have that communion cup that you received today, I just want you to get it out right now and just hold on to it for just a moment. I want you, you don't have to open it yet. But I want you to see the bread and I want you to see the cup. If you have not received one of those, would you please raise your hand? I want to make sure everybody gets one. Make sure everybody gets one. They're coming to you. Just keep your hand up for just a moment. Just keep your hand up. I want everybody to get one. Make sure you have one. Here's what the Bible says about this moment. The Apostle Paul who, interestingly enough, never met Jesus while he was alive before his crucifixion. Remember this. There'd be a day when Paul would meet Jesus, but it was after crucifixion, after the resurrection. But I want you to notice what Paul says here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul got this from Jesus. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said, it's not the blood of lambs. It's my blood. 
it's not your faith in your ability to be good enough. It's your faith in the fact that I was good enough. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For all that you and I had lost by our sin, Jesus comes to restore. For all that we had taken from our soul, Jesus comes to restore and gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us. That is a full deal restoration right there. That's more than a four to one. Hello? It's an exchange of the Spirit of God for my spirit. For the honor that you lost by your sin and your arrogance and your pride, he restored that honor by seating you in heavenly places at the right hand, a place of honor. And when you had lost the ability to know peace, Jesus made a way for you to know that forever you are seated and settled with him. There is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, for all of us, there are some things that in this life will be restored. You've heard some stories over the weeks, things that have happened already. But I know what the Bible declares, that not every pain, tear, question, conflict, hurt will be resolved in this life. Not even the great men and women of faith in the book of Hebrews had all of their promises fulfilled in their life. But there'll be a day when the God who restores all things will do just that, restore all things. And this is because of a covenant that he makes. More than a commitment, more than a contract, he makes a covenant. And he seals this covenant with his own blood. He doesn't say, now, do enough good deeds and I might do some good deeds for you. No. He says, receive my son. Receive forgiveness through the blood and I will cleanse you of all your sin and you'll be seated with me in heavenly places. There's coming a day of restoration. The book of Acts says in chapter 3, Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Mm. There's coming a day of restoration. There's coming a day when all that has been wrong will be made right. There's coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. There's coming a day when every hurt will be ultimately comforted. And there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen? So Jesus gave us this way of remembering, of tangibly taking in, I mean literally, you and I are about to eat and drink this bread and this juice that is his body and is his blood. It reminds us of a covenant. So this morning, I hope you're filled with greater hope than you had when you came in. I am, amen? I hope you're filled with greater worship for our Lord and what he has done. And I hope your heart is humbled in a way that would allow you to receive not just this, but receive every promise, every amount of his love, and every bit of his hope that is ahead for us. Amen? Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to pray. And this is a very, uh, this morning, I believe this is a very personal, private time of worship. So we're not going to do this all together. Sometimes we do that, but that's different today. I'm going to pray. I want you to take some time to pray after that. 
Thank God for Jesus. Listen to me. Don't dwell on your sin in these next moments. That's not what this is. We don't even really focus on the death as much as we do the life that these represent. Don't get caught up in the enemy beating you up over your sin. If you if God brings it to your mind, confess it and receive forgiveness for that right away. That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. That's forgiveness. That's, that's the blood of Christ shed for us. That's his body broken for us. Receive all of that. And when you've had some time to pray, then eat, then drink, then we'll sing. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, today our hearts are softened before you and humbled and grateful at what you have done in restoring that which you did not take away, but in restoring that which we did take away. And I thank you for that kind of sacrifice, that kind of love. We come to worship, to adore, to yield, to surrender, but most importantly, to receive forgiveness for our sin. I pray against the enemy in this moment and all that he would like to do to deceive and darken and remind us of our faults. And whereas we acknowledge our sin, we confess our sin and we confess more importantly that our Lord Jesus Christ died for my sin. And by that death, I am free. In Jesus' name, amen.